Hi, I'm Joe Gerstamp. And I'm Jason Lortzen, and we're Talent Anarchy, and you're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? So we are... Um so we are Joe Gerstin and Jason Lawrence, and we work together. Uh, we do some work together at Talent Anarchy, and uh, the bulk of the work that we do is speaking. We come to conferences and to corporate events, uh, do keynote presentations and workshops, um, and <clears throat> I think the, the the messages that we have and the way that we deliver them make us, uh, most of those things make us pretty unique. Well, all right, and, and Talent Anarchy, I'll say on the unique side, is a, is a unique name. Um, how did you guys go about uh, forming, and, and what inspired you to be Talent Anarchy, and what, what is that Talent Anarchy all about? Well, I would, it's, it's interesting because I think it's, um, like, like most things, um, it evolved over time. Um, Joe and I originally came together working, you know, we, we worked together actually in this sort of little dysfunctional, um, little dysfunctional small business in Omaha that, um, you know, thankfully neither one of us were there for a long period of time, but we were there long enough to get connected and, and we had a lot of common interests. And ultimately one of the common interests we shared was speaking and performing kind of in front of people. And so um, actually through some community involvement, we ended up doing um, a series of presentations um, through the Chamber of Commerce together, the two of us, and we were getting rave reviews and that um, that kind of led us to start, you know, one day we sort of, we were scratching our head and saying, you know, hey, we seem to be fairly good at this, and there are a lot of sort of um, really crappy speakers out there that don't have much to say, that are getting paid money. We think we're at least better than the worst of them, so maybe we could make some money at this. And so uh, we decided to start, you know, going out and speaking, and then we figured we needed a name and, um and really, the the thing that I think Joe and I, one of the things that we share in common is we both have sort of this passion for leadership and talent and, and really, you know, seeing people kind of be their best. But we tend to see things differently than others, and we tend to be disruptive. And so just the notion of, of putting the word talent together with anarchy felt like a good description of what we do. And it also seemed to kind of resonate with sort of where the talent, the, the understanding of talent is in the market. So talent anarchy it was, and it just sort of has stuck and grown, and I think we've grown into it over time as well. So that's kind of how talent anarchy came to be. Well, all right. And, and uh, you guys speak on a variety of, um, of topics related to, to HR, to talent management, et cetera, et cetera. And there is, along with all of those talks, there is a new book out called Social Gravity. I think we'll, let's talk about the book a little bit, and then we'll, we'll um, talk about what you, at least on the site, call the goods, the, different, the other um, kind of presentations that you guys do. So the book is called Social Gravity, and it talks about uh, the natural laws of relationships. Tell me, tell me about how that book developed and really what the ideal reader for t- Social Gravity is. Yeah, that book developed just out of our our first kind of primary presentation that we rolled out when we first started speaking together. The the first message that we took out was a, a presentation about social capital, about the value, the resources that we have access to because of who we're connected to. Um, and that was actually our first presentation because when we were running around trying running around town trying to do things and trying to make things happen, people used to come up to us on a pretty regular basis and say. How do you guys know everybody? And 
we didn't know everybody, but we both had built, you know, pretty large, pretty diverse, pretty valuable networks. And so um, we kept getting asked about that, and we decided to turn that into a presentation. And we went out and traveled around the country for a couple of years delivering that at different conferences and for different corporate events. And um, we eventually got to the point where we felt like our next step was writing a book and that that would be a, a good first book. And so we sat down and we started, you know, we spent uh, a year or maybe 18 months putting that uh, into book form. And we still deliver the message, still a message that resonates with folks. Um, I think there's a pretty good understanding that relationships matter, but I think a lot of people still have kind of a passive approach towards it. They're not as intentional and deliberate and proactive as they could be about building networks of relationships and using them. Um, so the, the book unpacks that, and the, the first half of the book is some science behind relationships and networks of relationships and how they form and where the value is at. And the second half of the book is, is the action piece. We've got six laws of, of social gravity that I think regardless of who you are, regardless of your age, your race, your gender, your profession, your education, the things that you can go and apply to your personal and professional life uh, and build social capital and have more influence because of that. Really, in terms of audience, David, I mean, the, the, the audience for the book is really anybody that, you know, desires to have more, be more than they are today that sort of is interested in, in being more successful or more having more impact or making more change and, you know, is it, and can sort of the book helps them find that through the power of social gravity, social capital, and sort of building relationships. It's sort of that how-to to really help them be more effective. So it's really, I don't know that we have, you know, a fairly narrow audience, but it's particularly, um, you know, for those that are, you know, building, growing, and trying to understand how to move themselves forward in the world, it's a perfect, perfect read for somebody that's at that point um, in their career. Oh, no, for sure. When I was when I was reading through it, that comes through loud and clear. And you talked a little bit about the, um, you, you, how the book follows two sections, basically, kind of laying the framework, the foundation, talking about the, um, the research, the stories that all kind of prove what this goes. And then we move into these six um, laws of gravity. You know, I, I think I think Newton only had three. Um, you guys have six, but that's cool. Uh, we, that, that we won't read into that too much. But I want to talk a little bit about what those what those laws are. I mean, I don't want to give away the book. I want to make people have to go get it to get the real meat of the laws. But talk a little bit about what those six laws are and how we can apply them. Well, the, the, first, let's, let's one of the things that I think is important to talk about when we talk about the reason that we sort of chose to use the phrase social gravity and really to play on this idea of the, the six laws of social gravity is that, you know, social gravity is this name we, we gave to the power that exists in the relationships we have with others to attract opportunity into our lives. And the, the thing about the, the laws is that the laws, the laws we're talking about here aren't like the, you know, the laws of the, the, laws of the people, the kind of laws that land you in jail, but they are like the natural laws, like, you know, Newton's laws um, pertaining to actual gravity. And the thing about that is that gravity, you don't have to understand the laws of gravity or be able to sort of, you know, list those out or break them down or whatever in order for gravity to be holding you down to the, the surface of the earth. Um, gravity's always at work. It's at work around you. 
But once you understand gravity, if you can harness gravity, you can put it to work. So you think of things like, you know, the example I always like to use is, you know, um, that the toilet operates by using the laws of gravity in a clever way. You know, water, water towers and those kinds of things operate using gravity. Um, they've harnessed those forces. And really our laws operate in the same way. They're sort of, you know, think of them as natural laws. And so the, the, the six laws of social gravity are first to invest in connecting, which is that we have to, you know, we have to be intentional about putting energy into building our network and being intentional about where we spend time, intentional about uh, creating diversity in our network. Um, our second law is be open to connections. Um, the third law is to be authentic. And we believe, us, you know, authenticity attracts um, attracts people into your into your life, into your network, um, and authenticity is a really, really powerful force for building building really meaningful um, relationships. The fourth law is get involved in meaningful activity. And this one really is is one that you know meaningful activity is really kind of a, a, a powerful way of of building relationships. It's essentially suggesting, and this is sort of, I think, we take a little bit of an interesting approach to how you build build relationships and that we will openly say we think that sort of networking events are largely kind of a waste of energy. I mean, they're very, they're inauthentic. It's, you know, it's sort of selfishly motivated, whereas you want to build real meaningful uh, relationships that form into powerful networks, you go get involved in stuff. You get involved in trying to make things happen with other people that share common goals and common values. And in the course of doing work, you end up building um, great relationships. Um, fifth law is use karma as a turbocharger in your network, which is just that, you know, as you build your network, do as much good for other people as you can. Because when you do good for people, you key into this sort of notion of reciprocity and that, um, or this compulsion for reciprocity we have as humans and that we want to keep our relationships in the balance. So when someone does us a favor, we want to return it. So by doing good, um, you, you really put value into your network. And the sixth law is to, is to stay in touch, is that you've got to cultivate relationships over time. Meeting someone once doesn't necessarily build a relationship. You have to create overlap in that relationship over time by getting to know each other and building common experiences. So, so those are sort of the six laws and how, you know, so how we break that down um, in the book. And I love I, I harped on, or at least what what drew me um, drew me in, and then what I kept kind of rereading and spending the most time in is is actually kind of um, the interplay between four and and five, the fourth law and the fifth law, which is I, for what it's worth, I think you're absolutely right. And and there's there's research on human connections that even support this idea, but it kind of ties with the easier way to say it is, yeah, if you get involved in in doing something that's meaningful, if you're taking a team and you're you're making progress, then collectively all that cohesion, everybody gets along better. And you think about your own life, and I, I've been to probably three networking events in my life, and, and that was three too many, or really maybe maybe two too many. The first one I could sort of I, – I can't blame myself for going to, but I blame myself for going to the second two. Um, but then when you get involved in projects, either either in your own work life and you're in a company in a for-profit setting or even just volunteering on a nonprofit, you meet people that you can are continuously keeping in touch with and have a reason to keep in touch with and are also doing something – uh, meaningful. At the same time, you also have to be uh, you have to be good to them. You have to give them what they want. So, so four and five, I think, really play together. And to me, are kind of that key to that networking is is 
add something of value to the world and people will naturally kind of be drawn to you and you'll be naturally drawn to the people who are adding similar value. Yeah. And it's just a, it's just a, it's, it's a powerful context for, you know, planting the seeds of a relationship. You know, you and I aren't meeting because we're at this thing just to meet people. We're not meeting because I'm trying to sell you something or because you're looking for a job. We're meeting because we happen to care about some of the same things or be interested in some of the same opportunities. And so it's just, I think it's, you know, one of the, one of the, most powerful ways to actually um, to create relationships. Now, now let me ask you this though, because um, this is this is where my thought immediately went is you know you 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 two and myself we all met kind of online I think through Becky Robinson basically is how Jason and I met and then um, we started trading uh, started looking at each other's sites and trading ideas and I I Jason was nice enough he was he did fifth law he was nice enough to let me pick his brain for uh, a solid hour um, but at the same level. Um, we we all met in this online space, and I think the rules kind of still apply. But I want to I want to get your feel if they apply the same way or if they change any f- for online. I, th- I think they do still apply. I think um, you know there's there's some different things involved because there's if, if a relationship is completely online, there's some some contextual things that are missing. We have less you know body language and those types of things to pick up on. But I do think they apply, and I think um, understanding the concept of social capital is increasingly important because more and more people are talking about how to use social media, social tools. Um, and I think oftentimes the missing piece for individuals and organizations is that they don't understand the underlying issue of social capital. Um, and they don't use tools well or they don't use the right tools. Um, and they get, uh, in a lot of cases, I think, poor results. And they, they blame those results on the tools. But I think it's it's how they're approaching you know, the concept of relationships to begin with, whether the relationship is with employees or customers or potential customers. Um, I, I do think that the rules very much apply, and I think companies would do a better job of, of deploying social media tools um, with a little bit better understanding of social capital. Well, I, it, it's, we all said we all started in sales. I, I think of it as, you know, the way that a lot of people view social media and social networking, you know, in the in the web space is sort of like if if I had a phone salesperson who was getting poor results, so I would send them to a seminar about how to use their telephone more effectively. So here's all the buttons and here's how you can dial faster and here's how you can reach more people and here's how to check your 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 voicemail more effectively, but sort of ignoring the fact that the telephone is only as good as the person talking into it. So if you don't cultivate sales skills, um, it doesn't matter how effectively you use your telephone. You're never gonna you're never gonna sell anything. And I think and I think that's sort of the piece that we look at. At least the way I see, you know, when I look at when we're talking about social gravity and social capital, it's still about building relationships. Whether I'm doing it sitting across the table having coffee with you, whether we're working on a volunteer project whether we're working, you know, whether we're collaborating online or interacting on Twitter or whatever, all of the same things, all of the same ways that we build relationships are in play online. Um, I think the thing that changes is the numbers. I mean, the numbers get overwhelming and the, the, the you still, you know, and I think that's where a lot of people are missing the boat. You know, we've started to call, you know, people that we are connected with on Facebook friends. We've sort of taken that word and made it mean something different. But you still have to, in order to have a meaningful relationship, still requires creating this overlap. And you can create overlap online, and these tools are great ways to do that. But there's still a component of 
you know, interconnectedness that comes with talking to someone over the phone and then meeting someone in person as you add layers of, uh, of overlap into that relationship. That's really where I think it's just an opportunity online. Um, it's just an extension or another way to connect to more people. So it's still the same, same stuff. It's just, you know, new technology, new opportunities, new tools. Yeah, no, and I think that's a good way to, to put it. It's just the same stuff, but a new technology. I, I actually, as you were talking, was thinking about in my LinkedIn inbox, I have a, a, an email message or an invitation. Actually, it's an email message that is an invitation to connect. And what I mean by that is it's a, an invitation from someone who I've never met um, in a country I've never been to. And it says, I, I've run out of um, invitations to connect. Can you send me an invitation so we can network on LinkedIn? I was like, I, don't, I have no idea who you are. And I didn't even know there was a limit the numbers that you could send out. But apparently this person has already reached their limit by spamming people for invitations to be friends, basically. Right. <laughs> and I think one of, the, one of the things that we do talk about in, in book, Jason mentioned overlap. We talk about the difference between, you know, especially when you go online, we talk about the difference between quantity and quality. Um, if, if the quality of relationships isn't there, if there's not some overlap between you and the people that you're connected to on LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter or wherever it is, those connections are of little value, if any value. Um, at the end of the day, it's about people that will, you know, pick up the phone and take your phone call and, and can help you accomplish what you're trying to accomplish and, and vice versa. And if that's not there, um, then it's, you know, it's almost cosmetics. Um, so quality, regardless of where the relationship is, in real life, online, or some of both, quality is, a, is, is the, the key thing that matters. Yeah, no, totally. I totally agree. And I, I want to um, I want to transition uh, on that note that idea that quality is is really what matters into two other um, for for lack of a really good bridge uh, into two other quality uh, subjects that you guys talk about. Um, if, if I were to book Talent Anarchy for my conference, I can I can also have a bunch of other things that you guys speak on. One that particularly intrigues me is this idea of the Hack Lab, this idea of progress through deviation and and all of that. Tell me a little bit about um, Hack Lab and, and how that came about. Yeah, I, I don't know if I can remember off the top of my head where the idea originated come, uh, came from. Uh, Jason maybe can add that at the end. But Hack Lab is a, is a session that we do, and we do it um, in, in a few different formats. This is one that's pretty interactive, and the more time that we have, the better. But the basic idea is to, um, to take kind of some of the ideas and practices and beliefs from the hacking culture and apply them uh, to other domains of business. So we, we go to a lot of HR conferences and talent and recruiting conferences. Um, and so we work with those folks to take um, something that they would like to see work a little bit better. Um, and it could be from the job posting process to the department meeting process, you know, some aspect of their work that they would like to improve. And rather than, you know, spending time in committee and trying to revamp the entire thing and spend a year doing it, what we do is we we take that thing that they would like to see improved, we break it down to its smallest components, and then we have them start experimenting with those small components. So rather than brand sweeping change, we're looking at small incremental change that we can do on a regular basis. Um, and so we spend a little bit of time um, telling them a little bit of, of about the history and the culture of you know, computer hacking, software hacking, um, and then we put them through a process of actually, you know, pick one of these things from your work, um, and then they do some groups, some some work in small groups, and they, you know, they they 
you know, again, I'll use the example of team meeting. You know, it's not too hard to find someone that would like their team or their department meeting to be a little bit better. So we have them break it down into its smallest component. So you've got the agenda, you've got the time and the location and the place and the length and who runs the meeting and the different role of the meeting. And we have them pull all those components apart and then start trying to improve one of those things. So that there's actually, after we go through this process, there's actually things that they can go back to work and change, that they have the power to change um, and start trying to incrementally and consistently improve these things rather than waiting for someone to come along and, you know, completely change this big chunk of work, which um, actually pretty rarely happens. Um, so it's it's pretty fun. It's pretty interactive. Um, and uh, we've done it, I think, anywhere. We've done it or designed it anywhere from an hour up to about four hours for a group of people. So it kind of depends how deep we go into the process. kind of depends on how, how much time we have. But uh, it's a pretty fun process and a little bit different approach for folks. I, I love the idea of Hack Lab. I love that idea of, of just breaking it down to its components. And I do a lot of my own personal research with how do you lead creative, how do you lead I- innovation. And so, you know, you kind of, you, you had me at the word innovation. But anyway, um, I also love the idea that if you break it down to its small components, you, you see small wins. You know, I, it might take a sweeping thing that has to go through nine committees and six series of, of red tape before, and 18 months before I can get it approved or I can just change that little thing. And, and the fact that I have that small win just motivates me to keep going and keep tweaking other little things. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that we found is that that's the piece where people actually struggle. They've, they've, never, they've never really tried to think about, um, well, our team meeting kind of sucks, but they've never kind of thought about what the individual pieces are. And, and, and when we, the first time we did Hack Lab, we gave the example of, we used the example of the bicycle. We said, we want the bicycle to be better, but before we do that, we're going to break it down into its individual components. And that's a that's a pretty easy thing for people to do, right? It's a seat, tires, and chains, and that's a pretty easy thing to do. But when it comes to breaking down what the job posting process is or what the interview process is or what our team meeting is, when it comes to breaking it down into its individual components, what we found is that that's kind of where people, they kind of struggle with that. So, so we've... Um, We've made that a little bit more descriptive, and we've given them more actual work examples. But I think it's just kind of evidence that um, you know they haven't been in the habit of of doing that, thinking about small pieces that they could um, bite off and and play with and experiment with. Uh, and that's one of the things that I think is kind of illuminating for the folks that go through the process. Well, I think the other the other thing about the hack lab that I think is powerful is that. When you're, t- you know, when you're in an organizational, and David, you you alluded to it here just a moment ago, is you know people assume they need all these major permissions um, to do things. And yes, if you're going to blow up an entire process, if you're going to change an entire software system or something, you're going to need some permissions because it requires a lot of money and it's going to impact a lot of people and that sort of thing. But when you're when you're hacking, you can hack one small piece that might make a huge difference. And chances are you don't have to ask permission. So, you know, you can, and that's what we're looking for here is that you already have permission to make incremental changes to try and improve existing processes. So let's take advantage of that permission. Let's show you a process that you can use to start intentionally and specifically doing it. And and the cost of failure becomes very low because rather than an all-or-nothing system replacement or system change, if you're just hacking one chunk, if it doesn't work, you just go back and you try a different hack. And eventually one of them works, and then you move on to something else and move on to something else. And one day you wake up and you've created huge change, but you've done it one little piece at a time, and you never really had to ask permission. It just sort of happened over time. 
So it's a very powerful approach, we think. And we try to model it so that they feel it and then can take it back and immediately apply it when they get back to their to their office, to their cubes, to their desk. Yeah, and, and you do it uh, one little piece at a time. And, and really, if, if I understand it right, you do it together. And so here's the irony is that I see yep. this tying all the way back into social gravity because there's, there's a lot of research about when people work together on projects and, and those projects make progress, even if it's small wins progress, all of that cohesion works better. I mean, you're, you're right back at loss four and five from social gravity. Yep, absolutely. No, no, I, I absolutely love it. I think what you guys are doing is, is awesome. And so I want to encourage if I, we've got a lot of leaders and we've got a lot of middle managers and we've got a lot of HR folks that, uh, that listen into the podcast. And I encourage you guys, Throw a uh, throw a, a productive grenade in your next meeting and get get to work with with talent anarchy. But before that, before we close it out, I want to I want to transition uh, and talk a little bit about you guys and, and ask you a couple questions. Um, what what are you both reading now? Uh, I'm reading a couple books. I'm reading On the Road by Jack Kerouac. I haven't read it in about probably 20 years, um, so I'm rereading that. And then I also picked up um, Imagine by. Um, Gosh, I'm blanking on his name. Jonah Lehrer, I think it is. Uh, he's yep. uh, kind of unpacking the science behind creativity on, a, on an individual level. The, the stuff that I've read so far has been about just kind of exploring where those where insights and those aha moments come from. And uh, I two very very different books, but I recommend them both. Well, and for me, um, I'm actually uh, making my way. Uh, I'm, I'm finally finishing a book that I've been meaning to read for a long time. It's a book called Humanize, um, written by a couple of, uh, actually a couple of our friends, Jamie Nodder and Maddie Grant, that is uh, a really, the, the subtitle is How People-Centric Organizations Succeed in a Social World. And they kind of talk about how social media is sort of changing the nature of organizations and how they need to be organized and run, which is very cool. And uh, and then I, I just finished reading the sort of the classic book. This has been a couple weeks ago, but the the classic book, The Alchemist. And uh, it just it was you know it's a, one of those that's been on the list for a long time. A friend gave it to me to read, and I finally uh, finally read it on a couple of airplane rides here recently. And it's just a you know. One of those sort of books that's good for the soul. Hmm. Well, I know, and, and I have that uh, that same stack of, of books that are on the kind of to read list. And uh, interestingly enough, the problem with that to read list is that it keeps getting added to on both sides of it. I keep adding books down at the bottom, and then, and then books like Jonah Lair's Imagine come out, and I'm about halfway through that one now because it's hmm. you know that that one got added to the top of the stack uh, instead of the bottom. So. Uh, there's there's some books that I think are in the middle that may never actually get to, but oh well. Um, that's just the way it goes. Now I, I, you've got social gravity, you've got the book, you've got other keynotes, and I know you're always looking to um, you're always looking to wow audiences with the keynotes. But what else are you guys working on? What's next for Talent Anarchy, or what's next for you guys individually? Well, for Talent Anarchy, we're we're kind of gearing up to write our next book. Um, we've we've got another topic that we talk quite a bit about. Um, authenticity and uh we the the title that we usually talk about it under is flying your freak flag um and uh, i think that's going to be the kind of the heart of the message of our next book and and we're we're in the process of i think getting close to starting writing on that and i think we're both i think we're both kind of excited about that um i think there's a that's a topic that really resonates with folks when we talk about it i think we've allowed our workplaces to be fairly inauthentic and i think that's costly to organizations, to groups, and to individuals. And so when we do talk about being authentic and taking your whole self to work and flying your freak flag, 
kind of regardless of who the audience is, that seems to be a topic that resonates. And so I think um, I'm kind of interested to see what this next book will look and sound and feel like. Yeah, and, and I think beyond that, um, you know, right now we're on the we're on the front end of kind of taking our taking our show on the road. I guess you know we published the book in uh, in January and. We're putting together what uh, what we call the Social Gravity World Tour. Um, you know, we we sort of uh, I think Joe and I both uh, both in in sort of would have in other lives have fancied ourselves as sort of rock stars. We would have liked to have been in rock bands, but we weren't blessed with the appropriate talent. Um, so the best thing we can do is put words together and kind of perform that way on stage. And so. But that doesn't mean we can't sort of still pretend like we're we're rock stars. And so we uh, we're going out on uh, sort of launching out on our tour um, to promote the book and talk about social gravity and and hopefully spread this message out uh, to a lot of people uh, around the country. So we're excited to be sort of jumping off on that here this month and and uh, over the next twelve months. So that's kind of the other big 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 piece for us is it's getting to be that time where we uh, we head out to, to spread the message. Well, the Social Gravity World Tour uh, is just kicking off. If you want to get added to it, if you've got an available city or date, um, let these guys know. Townanarchy.com is the website. It's an awesome one. You can find more about their, their keynotes. You can find more about the book. Um, you can find more about uh, what they think about talent and what they think individually because they've got links to their individual blogs there too. So check that one out. Guys, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. Thank you. Thanks for having us.